right, here we go. Nice and quiet. Sound speeds, camera rolling. Holding for sound. Last looks. Calling for last looks. And set and action. I need to swap batteries. You know, making movies is hard. Making movies is hard. Welcome to Making Movies is Hard, the podcast about the struggle of being an independent filmmaker. I'm Mark Russell. I'm Liz Manichelle. This week we have writer-director and actor Kestrin Pantera on the show to talk to us about the making of her latest feature film, Mother's Little Helpers, which got to South by Southwest in 2019, landed her management, landed her an agent, and we talk about all the good things that, that, that can come from that and all the struggles and challenges and heartache that also come with such successes, which was really fun. I just want you to know how much of the story of success is thinking that you're a piece of shit while the best thing that you've always wanted, like your life stream is happening. Yeah, I don't know if it's my Jewish side or just my my like self, but I love self-deprecating people like oh, they, yeah. I just am drawn <laughs> to them. I just want to like hug them and hang out with them. And I feel like Kestrin has that in spades. But at the same time, she's like incredibly confident. It's like weird. It's like this fabulous double sided coin. You can relate to her very easily while also you could feel empowered by her. Uh, it's a great conversation. Yeah, I think like most artists can relate to that self-deprecation, you know, yeah. and in, even if they don't say it and don't vocalize it, it's like how we all feel on the inside about the work that we do and the decisions we make, you know, yeah. um, but uh, it's like, yes, you want to put that confident that like, you know, I know what I'm doing and I'm like, you know, the person that you should believe in, you know, you want to put that out there, but I do think it's good to be humble and good to to be yourself and I think sometimes when people get too like in that zone it it it, it doesn't end up being confident and ends up being something else it's like when I tell people or like say I let really like humans like as long as you could show the crack in your veneer every now and then and you're not a robot like you're a great human I mean as long as you're not Hitler like you're a great human um <laughs> right. I'm going down a weird rabbit hole with that one but let's just say it's no, good to be yeah I know what you mean though it's like when you see somebody who is so polished and like every answer to every question is like Ugh. it was great I am great I'd never had any worries like I know exactly what I want like that was all intentional. Like, you know, when it, all those answers come out and they're always the positive, like nice, glossy answer. It's not real. Yeah. And you can tell. So I think honesty is the key. And yeah. yeah, that's what was so great about the conversation. She was just so honest and open. You know, before we get to Kestrin, the network. Listen to me. Television is not the truth. We'll tell you anything you want to hear. We lie like hell. So I watched the network uh, over this last week um, again, and it is such a great movie. Oh my! Oh, gosh. network's amazing. I, I can't. I can't. Um, you know, believe I've only seen it maybe three times. This is maybe the third time <laughs> I've seen it, and it's just such a great movie. And the performances are so great, and it's really weird and out there. Ah, I love it. So if you haven't seen Network. Uh, everyone should go watch that movie. Um, but for us with our network this week, I found an article on Deadline about uh, Hollywood reopening a production and like some confusing uh, announcement from Gavin Newsom. Did you read about this? Did you hear this? I read it a few days ago, and I know that tomorrow is when they're going to announce the new standards. It's like right. coming out Monday, May 25th. And that's like very, very exciting for me because we've just been waiting, waiting to hear what's happening. But yeah, I didn't think that we got 
got any answers from this article. Was there any dates um, listed in this or was it just like we will have an answer for you about the plan on Monday? I mean, all the coverage I've been looking at said that Gavin Newsom was going to make an announcement this Monday. So I don't know what that means. I mean, it might even just be like on Monday, they're going to say that there's going to be a new plan announced in two weeks. <laughs> you know, like it's like the information is being disseminated in such like a slow filtered way right now. Um, but yeah, so we need to contribute to the California economy. Like the entertainment industry is so important to the state that I'm sure he's like feels very vested in what's going on with production. So what do you think he's going to say? Do you think it's going to be like, we are going to start production again in September of 2020? Or do you think it's going to be like, Nothing's happening until 2021. Like, what? Do, what is your prediction on this news? Oh, let me put on my optimism pants. Um, <laughs> with my optimism pants, I am hoping, instead of predicting, I'm hoping that they're saying uh, productions can resume July 15th as long as all members of set uh, have been tested and you are all practicing social distancing at all times possible and there are contracts signed between all members of crew and cast. That's what I put my optimism pants say. And then do you, what do you think the crew limit's going to be? Do you think it's going to be 50, 40, 20? Ooh, 20. 20. Wow. There was an article, not an article, it was an email from uh, the film SF, uh, which is like the, the, you know, commission here in San Francisco. SF film, yes. SF film. I think, yeah. Anyway, so they uh, said that they are taking permits now, but it's with a 10 crew limit. So you can have 10 people and the rules they want you to abide by are pretty um, simple. It's like social distancing, hand sanitizer and stuff, face masks, and that's it. That's fascinating. I know that the article references certain counties are like not going to allow filming and certain counties are. So it sounds like San Francisco is one of those allowance counties. And and I got really excited and I was like, oh my gosh, maybe we can shoot the final like two scenes from this movie that I produced in AD back in February. And then I totally forgotten that we have uh, we need a crowd of minimum 15 extras for this one scene. And so, of course, that makes it impossible. But like, let's say it is 20 people that L.A. allows like you couldn't have it. How could you possibly do any scene with any amount of extras? Like you couldn't, you know, like. Well, you could do that. What is it? I remember we had like the audience in a can or what is it? What is it called? It's like canned extras where uh, you put them like in the stands of a baseball stadium. But they oh, kind right. of look like people. <laughs> right, right. Just put them around like a bookstore. Just like, OK, that yeah. one's in that corner. That one's in that corner. Like a bunch of mannequins like with oh, their man. like their fists underneath their chins looking contemplative. Um, I think that sounds fun. Why don't we do that? Let's just all make like surreal mannequin films from now on. That's so funny. Well, you know, there's a whole like, what's it called? Stagecraft thing that they use for the Mandalorian where they can like create these backgrounds out of like green screen uh, using, well, it's not green screen. It's like rear projection of like a video, like a video game engine that's, that's in real time creating these backgrounds. So maybe they expect us to just make movies in that way, but you need like a huge expensive studio to do that. So I don't I don't think that's really possible for most people. That's really exciting about San Francisco. I hadn't heard that. And now I'm like really I'm, I'm like feeling more and more like you do every day. I'm like, what? The, the future. It's so bright. Um, <laughs> right. <laughs> it sounds really lovely. So 10? 10, 10 person crew. So like imagine like that's including cast, right? So if you have a cast of two, that's a crew of eight, um, which is still do- doable. And I, our crew for our movie was 11. So like. 
we only really need to cut like three people and we can do it. And I think we could probably cut those three people. Isn't it weird? It's like when you think about, I remember being, we did a skeleton shoot a few months ago for Lady Parts. And I remember we're thinking like, what could we do without? And it was really like, it became very touchy. Like I was like, oh, do yeah. I need a scripty? I don't know. I think I could survive without a scripty for two days. And then it's like, you just think of all the scripties whose hearts you're breaking in that moment. You know, it's like, I guess the director could boom. You know, like if they're watching, maybe they could boom. Like there's certain things that you would have to consolidate on and kind of prioritize. Who would you cut already? Well, so of our 11 crew, we didn't have a scripty on that movie because it was so small. But um, yeah, we probably, well, I had a, a production coordinator and a producer uh, in addition to me as an AD. So uh, probably the producers definitely cut and I'll probably try to keep the production coordinator and then we had costumes and makeup, probably cut costumes, maybe save makeup, but I still have to cut one more person. So it's really either like the extra lighting person or the makeup person who gets cut. So I guess it probably in my case with my film, since the lead actor does her own makeup anyways, and then the other actor is a man and doesn't really require that much makeup, I would probably cut makeup and I would just have the two lighting team, uh, my production coordinator, in addition to me as the producer and the AD, and then, uh, yeah, then like, you know, we have one AC, one DP, a director, um, and I think, and sound, and that's it. Yeah, so I really need to small. learn how to gaff. I need to go to an <laughs> island for five years and read every book on gaffing, and then I can bring that to set, and that could be my asset to get more jobs. Or just hire a DP, or I'm sure Julia knows. Yeah, well, you know she does. If you were going to work with Julia again, I'm sure you would. Uh, she would just light it for you. You wouldn't need to know how to gaff. That's true. Oh, all the makeup artists and the the ads. I, know. I mean, and the scripties oh. and the costume designers. Oh. Yeah, and well, the, yeah. and we didn't even have art department on my movie, so it was <laughs> this last one I worked on. You didn't had, have an art department on the on the the horror movie that I just the did? red no. snow. No, we did not. Oh my gosh! It was it was the director and his wife. They did all the set dressing before the crew came. And then uh, we got really lucky because makeup and costumes are also both art directors. And so they double oh duty. So they're probably going to get an art director credit in addition to their makeup and hair credits. Um, because not makeup and hair, makeup and costume designer credits. Um, wow. So we actually just got really lucky because if we didn't have those two people, like with the art department, like skills, it would have been a lot harder to do what we did. God, that's amazing. Well, we officially pushed to August is oh, what wow. we decided. And I oh don't know gosh. if it's going to happen in August, but, you know, that's what we've It's not going to happen in July. Yeah. So um, we officially pushed to August. So we'll see what standards will look like then. Same for us. Like, we're basically just going to wait until whenever we can have. Um, I think it's going to have to be 30 is is the minimum that we can do what, we, the, what the director wants, because we could get away with a 10 person crew and then we'd need 15 extras, so that puts us at 25, and then cast 27. So if we had 30 as our max, we could do the pickup day for our shoot. But until we have 30 as the limit, then we have to wait. So I'm just going to wait until that announcement makes is made, and then when that announcement is made, then I'll start you know, trying to book the shoot. You know, I'm really curious to hear what uh, Gavin Newsom has to say tomorrow. And uh, we'll talk about it on the next week's show. <laughs> Yay! The future is uh, will be fun. So, Liz. What? You've got mail. My breath catches in my chest until I hear three little words. You've got mail. 
I just rewatched You've Got Mail. It's one of my favorite movies. Oh, it's fun. I haven't seen it in years, but I remember loving it when I saw it last. It's really fun. Well, I can watch it over and over again. I could like that could I mean I just Nora Ephron is my patron saint I don't know if that's a phrase for a Jew uh, but she is someone that I like a lot uh, so I watch any Nora Ephron anything even Bewitched I will watch it over and over again so this week we have another email from a listener Brandon Thatcher and uh, get ready for this this is uh, not all positive he was basically letting us know that uh, our podcast wasn't populating and all on Google Play on Android so that's where this sort of conversation started but then I asked him if he had any feedback and then he said as far as feedback for the show goes I have some opinions about the recent format changes I'm a big fan of less is better my favorite podcaster has no intro music nor different segments with transition sounds just him talking either by himself or with a guest he is a master communicator I'd suggest simplifying the format to what it was before as much talk as possible without the audio fluff I'll continue to listen because I've enjoyed what I get out of MMIH. Wow. What do you think, Liz? So that's Brendan Thatcher. Yeah. Um, no, I like that. I like that feedback. I think we had a little bit of fear that we would lose substance when we created these segments. But I find that the segments give us more energy and consolidate our conversation and give us a lot more focus. So what we lose in that like organic, lovely organic quality that I think we had before, I think we make up for with a little bit more direction now. So I... I appreciate his feedback and I hope that we continue to improve, but like, I don't agree with it. Oh gosh, I'm saying it out loud. I don't agree with it. <laughs> well, I, I think I like the focus. Like I do agree with you. Focus is good. I do think that sometimes we ramble even in the segments a little bit <laughs> too much, um, which I mean, can be edited down, you know, and if our overlords deemed that we were talking too much they would edit it down even more and and sometimes they do which I think is great um so I do like the focus but it was so funny because we got this email and we just added uh, little sound bites from uh our movies that we have in our segments so now you're gonna hear like a little clip from network and a little clip from the player you know in between each segment so like as he was giving us this feedback we were adding more bells and whistles <laughs> to the show <laughs> So now he's probably going to hate it when he hears this episode. Um, but uh, but anyways, no, I think but I think it's valid. And I'm, I'm, I'm curious if he's the only one who thinks this way, because basically uh, since this has happened, I've gotten this is like the first real negative feedback I've, I've heard about this. Everyone else seems to love the format change. Well, I'm glad that he's giving it. And I think that ultimately ultimately it's a compliment at the end of the day it's a compliment to you and whoever's on the show with us the idea that like he just wants to hear us talk <laughs> like that's really cool that's such a nice thing to say I just think um I don't know if I could be that interesting um untethered at this point Right. And it's also a compliment to you, too, as well as that. And then after I let Brendan know that we were going to read this on the podcast, he wrote us another email. And I think you should read this part of it. Sounds good. Just to be clear, I really do enjoy the podcast and thank you and Liz are doing an amazing job. Oh, that's nice. Thank you, Brendan. Uh, when I'm able, I plan on becoming a Patreon supporter. Ah! Uh, he did write the app. 
<laughs> very cool. As I've listened to every episode, I've learned so much from listening. And my biggest takeaway has been the idea of digging my oil well so that I can focus on filmmaking. I'm currently trying to break into the tech industry and work on filmmaking on the side for now. I remember Timothy talking about the oil well philosophy, and I really think that's the best way for me to sustainably be a filmmaker. Uh, in any case, thanks to you and Liz for a great podcast. What is the oil well philosophy? How have I missed this? So uh, this is something that I don't know where when Timothy brought it up or why he brought it up, but this is actually something Francis Ford Coppola talked about when I worked with him on uh, his movie Twixt, that like the advice he was giving us as filmmakers was to find our oil well. And for him, his oil well was his winery and his wine business. Um, and that's how he was able to make, make his last like three or four movies was mm -hmm. they were all self-financed, yep. um, you know, and he didn't have to like that was kind of after he got himself out of debt uh, through his his winery and through doing all those studio films that he did over the years. Um, but yeah, but that was that was what he was saying is like, find the thing that will make you money that will support the art that you want to do. So you don't have to be beholden to anyone else for your art, basically. Mm -hmm. um, and I, like I haven't. That. You know, I haven't found my oil well. Um, maybe video production, but not really. I mean, it's that's your day job. That's how you make a living. It's my day job. It's what I do use to survive. But it's definitely not uh, generating money for me on my own without me doing anything. Oh, um, it has to be passive income to a degree. I think okay. that's the idea is that like you set it up, you put a lot of work into it and then like it just generates you money and you can go off and do whatever you want while it's generating you money. My sister tried to get me to do this. Like, I went home a few months ago for people to meet my son, you know, my family to meet my son and hang out with him for a little bit. And she was like, Liz, I want you to create some passive income. And she's like, can you write an ebook?" And I was just like, I don't know how I'm going to find time to write an ebook, Sarah. <laughs> like, I really want to. Like, this is such a good piece of advice. Um, but she, she really is trying to support the idea of, like, what can you do now and then walk away from so that it can uh, create support for you? So I agree. But I, I, yeah, I don't know how many people will buy. I think that works. <laughs> like Dan Mervish and Chris Gore and all of these really cool indie film festival people did that in like the early 2000s. And Peter Broderick, like they wrote, they wrote these books and they wrote content and they developed these websites that people are going, were going to. But like, does that happen now? And like, what if the podcast becomes our oil well? Right. Well, that could be. And I mean, a suggestion from a friend of the show, Andrew Schrader, was to take transcripts from our episodes and turn it into ebooks because we have like thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of words that we've spoken into microphones over the years and like that could be generated into an ebook or multiple ebooks even um, and so that was his suggestion that we should do that and then that could be part of our passive income is like having this ebook that you could uh, buy or he he even like likes to give ebooks away as a way to like get people into his world you know um so i don't know i mean it's something to consider maybe our overlords will do it um you know turn some of our podcasts into ebooks uh but i definitely won't do it because i don't have the time or inclination but uh liz there's a call will you answer you've got the best team of people in this whole city working to find you but in order for us to help you i need you to help me 
I need to watch the call. Like, if it's oh going to be one of our segments, I have to actually see this movie. So I was watching the clips for the call, and yeah. they're all terrifying. <laughs> because it's about, like, this serial killer who's <laughs> killing people and calling this same dispatcher, uh, 911 dispatcher, and, like, Halle Berry. Taunting, taunting her, basically. And uh, I was trying to figure out, like, why the kidnapped woman was on the phone or how it was possible. And then I realized, oh, it's the plot. Like, he's trying to keep the person on the phone with the 911 people to like fuck with them or something. I like that we're paying tribute to Bradley Gallo every week with this selection, but maybe just like just an idea. Maybe we want to pick a more positive <laughs> film. Like, well, I'm open. Know. And if, if listeners have any ideas of what uh, the call could be besides the movie, the call, I just think it fits because it's like the call where it's like the call to action. I don't know. It just seems to work. <laughs> Uh, but anyways, so if uh, you uh, like the show or you, uh, you know, find this interesting and you have a dollar to spare, you can go to our Patreon page at www.patreon.com slash MIH podcast and support the show with a dollar, five dollars, ten dollars, whatever you have. And, you know, we also need more iTunes reviews. I think we've gotten a couple or at least one in the last week that we haven't read yet. You can send us questions and topic suggestions to our email at podcast at dot um, and we would love to hear from you. And if you're like Br- Brendan and you have uh, some negative feedback or any kind of feedback for the show, send it over. We'd love to hear it. Do we talk too much? Let us know. <laughs> Is your favorite movie The Call? Let us know. Yeah. Do you love the segment titles that we have? Let us know. Are they terrible? We'd like to hear. The next segment. I'm Lori Craven and... I'm an actress. An actress? Really? How nice for you. I'm Betsy Faye Sharon, and I'm a bitch. Should I jump into it? Should I just jump talk in, about things? Do it. Do it. Okay. So uh, this audience building distribution tip comes from every conversation I've had with a filmmaker ever. Uh, <laughs> okay. Every time a filmmaker will be like, what should I do? Uh, who should I choose as my distributor? There's this one distributor... Who you like, Liz, who you've recommended, and you think they're honest and transparent, but you know what? I'm not getting a lot of enthusiasm from them. Or there's this other distributor who says that they really love my film and they're really going to try hard and they get it and they get me and we really get along. I really want to go with them. What should I do? And so my tip for the week is you don't need, like your distributor doesn't need to love your movie. And I know that sounds mean I guess it sounds mean it sounds dark um and I'm not trying to be dark I'm just trying to say that like I think honesty transparency communication business relations all of these things are way more important than someone watching your movie and telling you they loved it because ultimately anyone can lie to you about that anyone I I know the way to flatter and get at a filmmaker's heart I go to them and I say I loved your movie. It really touched me. I don't have to say anything else. I have just won you over as a filmmaker. Like, <laughs> I am now in your mind a devoted audience member who just made your day because we never hear from anyone that they love our movie. So, once someone says it, it like really impacts us and it makes us make really bad business decisions sometimes. Uh, so you think that that if someone's saying I love your film that they're trying to trick you into signing with them? Maybe? They're they're absolutely tricking you. They're not trying to trick you. They've just tricked you um, <laughs> okay. because yeah, everyone look everyone who listens to this film everyone could be a great filmmaker. I I don't think that talent is this mystical force that is bestowed upon you by a higher 
force. I don't I like I don't believe in the higher power. I believe that everyone <laughs> can develop and tell good stories. It's all within our power. But um, for some reason, when someone tells us that we made a good movie, it just like makes us feel really validated and it makes us feel appreciated and it's rare and we want to go with that person. We want to go with the distributor who says like, oh, I love the, I'm trying to think of the terms. It'll be like, it really reminded me of a young Tarantino. Like some <laughs> phrase will just get us and melt our hearts every time. And what I'm saying is like my distributor, I'll come, I'll come right out and talk about Nick right now. Um, Nick Sava of Giant Pictures or Giant Interactive, um, I adore him. He's British. He's uh, he's very sensible. He's not effusive. He I don't even think he's seen my movie, to be honest. I don't think he's seen Speed of Life, but he will always respond to my emails. He'll give me information up front and he doesn't take advantage of me. And I tell this to people constantly and then they'll just like be woo wooed over by some small boutique distributor that has no track record because they said to them the phrase I loved your film and I think that's so dangerous so my tip for the week is like don't trust that don't trust compliments trust track records and trust communication and trust like like reputation don't don't trust like passion unfortunately when you're making business decisions so what if it's like A24 who's saying that they love your movie oh go with them (laughs) (laughs) So you're basically just saying if they're like an unknown, like yeah. small company and the thing that they're wooing you with is that I, they loved your movie and like they can talk about how great your movie is. Yeah. Like, don't be seduced by that. Like, go don't. with the person with a better track record. Because it doesn't matter. They could love your movie and that's wonderful. And you could talk about your movie on long conference calls and that'll like make your day or your week. But what are they going to do? They If they have no relationship with Netflix or Hulu or Showtime or whatever it is, then they can't if they don't have a track record of successful pitches, it's going to be really hard to sell your film to different territories, different platforms. So, yes, that passion is really meaningful in terms of a business relationship, in terms of getting on the same page. But I, ultimately, I, I don't care. If I'm the one marketing, if I'm the person who's marketing the title, which very often in with small distributors you're going to be marketing more than the distributor is, then I need to know my audience and I need to know how to market it. And I need to know what design aesthetic I want to go with. Like I, as a filmmaker, need to know those things. I don't necessarily, I can't rely on my distributor to do that anymore. So the the words are cheap with me and like actions are way more important. So I just wanted to, <laughs> to bring this up because I had a conversation with, with someone this week who who, uh, you know, referenced people that I'd worked with in the past. And I would say how great they were, how wonderful they were. And uh, this filmmaker said, you know, I wasn't getting a good vibe from them. Ah. And it's like, well, then you you shouldn't work with them, you know, but ultimately don't just fall for the compliments, you know, really think about how far are they going to take your film. Track record over floweriness. Very rarely as filmmakers do we hear compliments. So I get it. I get it. It's hard to say. It's hard to go in the opposite direction of a compliment. So, the player, list. what do we have this week? What about truth? What about the reality? What about the way the old ending tested in Canoga Park? We asked uh, first ADs to weigh Ooh. in on how do they wrangle a crowd? How do they wrangle people on set? How do they convince people to listen to them? 
my name is Haley Lannon, and I'm a freelance assistant director. For me, maintaining a calm and productive atmosphere on set while keeping people in line starts in pre-production. Getting to know everyone and setting a solid foundation for everyone's expectations, both the crew and production, are key to running a productive set. A lot of my job is being the intermediary between the crew and production, and I have to look out for the interests of both sides. Um, Peace prepping, which I am definitely calling it from now on, involves getting to know your key crew members and their vision for the project. Simultaneously, knowing the limitations of the crew and making them known to creatives helps temper their expectations and be prepared for what's really accomplishable with the crew's size and budget. On the other side of the coin, an AD should also make sure all the essential needs of the crew are being taken care of. This includes checking on anything from a proper lunch to making sure production is offering overtime. Doing this lets them know you're on their side, and in return, they'll be willing to hustle when the time comes. With all of this out of the way, it makes calling someone out on set when they violate the established expectations of either side much easier. Hi, my name is Daniela Eisman. I've been a DGA First AD for about 10 years, and now I'm also directing episodes. So how to get people in line on set. For me, the most important thing about being a First AD is clear and concise information. We're all there because we love our job and the art of filmmaking. We want to do it well, and we can't do it without the correct information. So I always start the day with a safety meeting, the day's goals our timeline, our lunch plan, any moves, because I feel that when everyone is on the same page, things just go smoother. I have a calm and commanding approach, and I don't yell because I feel that if you live in that pitch, people can't hear you or they just won't listen. So maybe once an episode, I will yell if it's imperative or we're losing the light, and then boy, do people listen and hustle and get on your team. I absolutely love my job. I have so much passion and I feel like people see that and I feel like the crew is able to trust me because they see how much I put into the job. So without further ado, let's talk to Kestrin. Yeah, so Kestrin wrote, directed, and starred in Mother's Little Helpers, which premiered at South By last year, and she uh, has lots of little nuggets of wisdom. The way that we start our show is we ask like five questions, uh, rapid fire style, about the making of your film. Um, so Liz, you want to take the first question? Yeah. How many days did you shoot? Eleven. What was the rough budget, if you can say? Zero dollars. <laughs> literally zero dollars i mean wow. we had somebody but you know it was just like beg borrow steal everything how long did you work on it from inception to its release i wrote it in 2015 failed to make it and then 2018 until now may 2020 that's our release our official release when was the year that you failed to make it was that 2018 or 2015 2015 wow oh man so it's been uh, been a while how many people were on set 15, 12, depends on the day. And out of all your projects, how difficult was this one compared to them? It was the easiest. Can we dip back into the the budget question? Because I'd love to hear more. Like, yes, everyone thinks that they have no money, but what 
you must have had a budget. <laughs> like, can you elaborate? I mean, we literally begged, like, we borrowed everything. Um, we paid people, like, the way that we needed to for the unions. And then, but everyone is a producer on the film. Um, everyone, the, the core cast are all producers and writers on the film. Mm. So that's a key point. It wasn't like show up and do my opus. It was like, we are creating this thing together and you are going to have input into this project and you're going to be the specialist of your character and I'm going to listen to you. And that goes a really long way in terms of like loyalty, buy-in and um, commitment from the team. Were they actors that you'd worked with before and you had to, and you didn't have to earn that trust or did they already trust you? They were my friends and I had sung a lot of karaoke with them with the exception of Melanie Hutzel. And um, I had known Dave Gentoli from acting class. I like met him like the first day he came to Los Angeles practically. So, and now he's a big TV star. But so I like he got married and had a baby, so we don't like hang out. But I had enough of a relationship and had done enough shows with him back when we were like in our 20s that it was an easy thing to it was an easy call to make. But everyone was a friend of mine before I made the film. So they trusted me and they loved me. They were all much um, more established. Like they were all like TV series regulars or like had their own careers and kind of community audience fan bases that I had seen them develop for the, you know, 10 or 15 years that we had known each other. Uh, so I was a little threatened to ask them to do it because I, it's always weird where you're like, I don't want to like glom off your success or whatever. But we knew each other. We were friends. So and they liked me. So they said yes. What led you to decide to do it in this manner? Was it just because like, oh, like this is this movie will work in this fashion just as well as it would have worked if we had raised a bunch of money for it? Like, what was the process for that? Um, It was literally my own mind game. So I wrote it in 2015 and I had to close my office in Silver Lake a couple months ago because of the whole the current event thing. And um, I was getting out all my notebooks. I have tons and tons of notebooks. And I looked at one that I just randomly opened a notebook. And it was the one from 2015 where I sketched out all the characters and the story and the outline and everything. And I had forgotten that 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 I'd even done that process. Like in my mind, it was almost like how people like black out of like the pain of labor and decide like, oh, it wasn't that bad. And I'll have another kid. Um, it was like a blackout that I forgot that I went through that whole process in 2015. Like in my imagination, I just kind of like worked on it leading up to when we shot in 2018 and that was it. But then it reminded me of this whole other phase where I had shot and released a film in 2013 or 2014. And then the events that inspired the film happened and I started writing the movie. And I thought, like, this is my second feature. This is going to be so easy. Like, I'm just like, someone's just going to write me a check. I've, like, directed, like, TV or, like, you know, digital series, sold some stuff. Like, this is going to be easy. Like, I'm going to be directing Star Wars, basically, because I made one indie movie already. Obviously, yeah. So I thought it was going to be just kind of, like, show it to the company that I had produced some stuff with. And then, like, we were going to be done. And um, I showed it to the company, and they were like, cool. Like, I mean... Yeah, like keep us in the loop. Like they didn't even hate it. They were just like kind of like, sure, like 
whatever. Wait, did they know it was a pitch or were you just informally saying, let me show you something? I don't know what I was doing. Like, maybe I was an (laughs) idiot and didn't know how to make a real ask and was vague and insecure. That's one question that I have upon looking back. (laughs) Like, maybe they didn't know what I was asking. Like, can I have some money, please? I didn't say that, you know. Um, They're like, well, maybe we might want to get involved in more in the distribution phase or something. They had a vague answer. And I think I did that to one or two people. And I don't know the quality or directness of what I was asking for. And no one gave me a check. And so I presume that I was an idiot piece of shit and the idea sucked and like crawled into a hole. And God, then, we're so similar. You know? <laughs> yes. And then in retrospect, I probably should have asked more people and been more direct about what I was asking for and more like joyfully confident and just resilient. Um, and that's one of the things I hope to do the next time around. Because just because they didn't say, like, here's some money, like, I don't even know if I... Yeah, refining the ask is something I would definitely get into uh, with more gusto next time. But I I did learn how to do that with the actors. And I did learn how to set um, pretty clear, like, expectations. Like, under-deliver, under-promise and over-deliver in terms of quality of like what to expect. I was like, this is like a pizza shoot. If you have restrict- restrictions, like you need to work that like, we're, oh. you know, like we were just like, this is not, this is like, we're just going to keep it really lean. It's going to be really fast. It's going to be really fun. You're going to be a co-writer, co-producer and like you get to bring it and you get to have a movie under your belt right now. You're going to have a feature under your belt, like for the, this year. And it's like the first, you know, the beginning of the year. And everyone was booked on series, but the series weren't shooting yet. So we just caught everyone in their dormant hiatus thing where they literally couldn't audition or go out or do anything else. So they were all like, oh, I'm feeling kind of creative right now. So we had this unique uh, like deadline where we had to shoot within a certain time constraint. And then so what happened? Was it like you got all the actors to agree to be in the movie and then you figured out how much money you needed to make it or... Was it the other way around? Like you knew like this is the bare, bare minimum I need to actually go shoot this thing if these actors say yes? Like how did that happen? I was financially reckless and I, well, (laughs) I was financially reckless. I put it on my credit card. Any cost that was needed up front. You know, I have been working for a long time and done a lot of favors for people for many, many, many years. So I was just able to call in every favor that I hadn't asked for ever. I just saved it and then I did it. I want to go back to what you said. You said um, you maybe in hindsight, you would have refined the ask and pitched more people. But you made this movie and you got into South by, which is like literally like half like 75 percent emerging filmmaker dream. And I know you're not an emerging filmmaker, but I think we're all like constantly emerging. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, So I guess my curiosity is, do you do you really regret that? Was that something you said in the heated moment right now? Or I mean, because it's really remarkable just to go out and do something and not ask for permission and not wait for that money and just get it done and still succeed. So can you talk a little little bit about success having done what you've done? Yeah, I mean, what you know, when I said it was the easiest project out of the other ones that I'd done, it was that. It really flowed like just something about the scheduling of the actors and the timing. And and because we didn't have a lot of money, we were able to give people a lot more in terms of credit and things on their IMDb to help them in other ways in their careers. Like some people want to be producers, but they don't realize they want to be producers until they get that producer or writer credit. And then they're like, oh, this is going to help me in whatever it is that I pitch moving forward. 
And I don't know if we would have been Mm. that generous if we had done it a more conventional way. But because we did do it that way, it's like the movie's about a family. And I felt like we became an actual family and they are my real life honest to God family like we talked you know we've been like through the quarantine process and getting ready to release the film this month the the human relationship fulfillment life side of it has been so much deeper than any other project that I've ever worked on and so much more long term I'm also kind of like that in my relationships like my work is my closest friends and my closest friends are my work so that's just that's just a unique kind of just way that I live my life. And we have a real motivation to keep it super harmonious. I like what you asked about like, well, you kind of I kind of won the lottery, right? That we got to make this movie in a really unconventional way and then have it kind of have our ideal success case scenario in terms of getting to take it to South by Southwest because the movie took place in Austin because it was based on the life and death of someone from Austin who attended South by for like 20 years before he died and he had a wristband to South by year one like we were it was like we wanted South by Southwest more than anything in the world so much that it was like scary Um, like you know when you want something so badly it you you kind of lose your leverage (laughs) (laughs) it was that we wanted it. It wasn't like it was it would have been a problem if we'd gotten into Sundance, you know, like <laughs> <laughs> fortunately, uh, you know, problem solved. But um, but um, so it was a big, big deal. And it was the greatest thing that had happened to me. And so I don't know if I would have actually done anything differently. Maybe I maybe maybe the big lesson from that is moving forward since I have burned through all of my favors. Um <laughs> I will need to learn how to ask properly and with more confidence and also be more direct about what it is that I'm asking for, which is capital investment. So I don't know if this is really the case, but it kind of sounds like you didn't necessarily have like a real budget or anything for this movie that you kind of just asked for favors and then anything that you needed to pay for, you just put on your credit card. Is that That's accurate? exactly accurate. <laughs> That's kind of bold, man. Like, I, I, I don't know. That's like, I think I would be a little too nervous to just just fly out there with in that way. You well, know? you know, like we had the location. The location was our like actor, actor, producer's house and then my house. Um, our DP owned a camera. So we just needed to scare up one other camera. And then we had a bunch of labs that we owned. And we were able to like, you know, everyone can like scare up a lab. Like if you've been working for like 10 years, you can if you can't scare up a lab, then you've been a real dickhead. Like, (laughs) (laughs) that's very true. If you can't get a lab, you're a real dickhead. (laughs) And then, like, I think that there's the part of, like, giving people opportunities. Like, I ran labs on my last, on my first movie, I had a lab. My DP and my other actors and I, like, we were all running sound the whole time. It was like the DP would push the zoom and then push the camera button. Or I would have the zoom in my pocket and be rolling. Like, it's not, it's like having a sound person is definitely crucial when you want it to be like a certain level of quality but then it's also like if you're making a janky indie movie it's like i don't know just push the fucking button like tony can you push the button thank you in terms of gear and stuff and like i have done a lot of work with a friend of mine who like i've done favors so i also run or ran because it's kind of like uh done for this chapter of my life um like a karaoke like a roving karaoke business so we would throw parties for all these people and like pick them up and like just really threw down and so we generated a lot of like goodwill i think in our community and 
friendship, like singing karaoke duets. Like there's something that happens when you sing karaoke with someone and on a good night that it changes you for life and you're like blood brothers <laughs> or spit sisters or something. Right. And I think that that carried through the filmmaking process where people were like, oh, like, of course, I'll go pick up a hard drive for you from Target because you just ran out of space and your producer is smart enough to or like actually our producer was smart enough to anticipate it. But like we were able to call enough friends who had life flexibility that they were able to do that. We could just like give them the card and they could go pick something up. And people want to make a movie. People want to run sound like cousin Michael, who just moved into town from Texas, who has a sound engineering background like he didn't have any film set experience. But of course, he could figure out how to run a zoom and it would be awesome for him to have a credit, you know, on a movie. That's awesome. So you could just super scrappy, just pull people together. This is a total family like friends project. Like we're just going to go out and make a movie for 11 days. That's that's awesome. And we cross shot on Area Mirrors, so we were able to get coverage and shoot really fast. So that's like a really wonderful, amazing thing that you're able to do. But like, what are some things that you did to make that uh, the the yes or the ask even easier to say yes to? Basically, like, did you shoot ten hour days or like like what were things that you did to incentivize the crew to like come and do this with you? I mean, the main thing was the actors were like I gave them their first takes. I didn't give any notes. I was just like, we need the scene to begin with, uh, you know, you asking your mom what sort of like religious ceremony she would like upon like her death and what sort of like burial she wants. And then at the end of the scene, you're going to think that she's dead, but then you're going to and you're going to start crying. But then you're going to real she's going to gasp and you're going to realize she's still alive, but sleeping still. And then you're going to steal her drugs like but whatever you guys talk about in the middle to get there is like make it up like go for it and wow and like when you have like a cast of like a former snl cast member improviser on your team and then you have brita wool like that is magic like melanie hutzel and brita wool want to improvise that scene that's like their whole life's work I want to go back just a little bit, if it's okay. Um, you said something about how anticipating the second feature would be easier. Are you, uh, do you have that same mentality about the third feature? Are you, you know, having gone into South By and the film's being released and getting the feedback that you're getting, are you feeling like it's getting easier from project to project? No. Yeah. <laughs> no, I think it's way harder. I don't know, man. Like, some of the friends of mine who have like shot an indie movie that went to Sundance and then went on to go direct a huge movie franchise, you know, there's like a there's like a couple people that I know like that, but they're also geniuses. I, I think some people get into this male female debate, like, well, like all you, you know, if it were a dude, he just directed a Sundance movie and then he's like directing blah blah blah, but that doesn't happen for women. And so I don't know how much of that is like I'm internalizing it and I don't know if it is actually helpful for my mental joy and innocence and like motivation and momentum, honestly. But it is like an important conversation to have and it is real. The compare and despair game. I yes, play it all the, the time. compare and despair <laughs> I don't think actually serves me because then it, it gives me all these reasons for why I can never do it. So I try to like get more away from that and also, you don't know what happened behind the scenes of those people. Like there's one there's one person I know who like seems like one of those like had a movie at Sundance and then like had a huge success like commercially in studio uh, directing. But then like also they secretly directed a whole other movie that got shelved. 
Mm. Before that Sundance movie. Oh, well, like Lena Dunham, too, right? Creative, what is it? Creative nonfiction was yeah. her first film. It, it wasn't Tiny Furniture, right? So yeah. it's like there's a whole story behind the story. Yeah, like you don't really know what goes into it. And all the successful people I know, like it wasn't just handed to them. Like they pitched it. They wrote it. They pitched it. And they tried really hard and they hustled. And they had a vision that they fought for. Fighting might might mean that they just kept... Uh, pitching it and instead of just like going into a hole and crying after the first no or the third no you know you get your movie into the south by southwest it's like you know a big success like what do you do next like um do you have another project that you're ready like pitching on or you're trying to get made or what is the next like couple months after playing at south by southwest look like okay so we played at south by in 2019 i got signed by an agent's by agency but it was it, it was all very mystical and woo woo I, I have a really woo woo or perspective to the whole thing than for someone who had like comes from a military family and is married to like someone who manages software engineers like every problem in my life is dealt with by a spreadsheet and then like a lot of woo woo so <laughs> like when okay so when you okay so this is the process that happens when you get a movie into like a festival that I didn't know that I learned is first you are like shitting yourself and you think that you didn't get in and then you like maybe like get a heads up and then you get an email that's like an acceptance email and then you have to sign a bunch of shit and then you can't tell anyone until there's a press like deadline announcement and then the deadline announcement comes out and every single major company and sales agent and um like all, all, they all call you. I knew it. I knew it. I knew it. I'd like doing a little dance. I knew this happened. Okay, go on. Okay, sorry. so they all email you, and it's like big companies, like um, I don't, uh, big companies and like publicists, and you think that they've heard great things about you. They'll say that they heard great things about you, and they're like, we're really excited about your career, and we really wanted to see if we could like get an advance, like look at the film to see if we could maybe represent it to like sell to distributors, and everyone is like, oh my god, like. UTA is emailing me you know this is amazing or 30 West is emailing me or like all these like huge um sales agents that are also part of big talent agencies or else it's like you hear about like companies like submarine like submarine actually did not email me but um you like hear of all these like legend legendary people and they're people from these companies are emailing you and what it really is, is they're trying to squeeze a link out of you to watch the, all the movies in the festival before the festival happens to see if they like it or not uh. and decide if they want to rep it or not. So they 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 like sniff your butt and then um, then <laughs> then it's like the first round of rejection is <laughs> before the festival even happens is like you think that there's this wave of attention and then there's like a wave of silence and but you're they like, have oh. your name Kester and they have your email address if they put a ke it's gonna pop up in their inbox that's like, true it's I think that's a step but sorry I cut you off please go on no it's amazing it's amazing but you realize like it they present it as one thing but it really is a different thing they're just trying to get access to the thing. So did you give them access? That's the question. Like, do you email them back with a link? Some we did. Some we did. Yeah, why not? Yeah. Um, well, and But know. then there's other people, <laughs> like another um, collaborator or another, like, kind of mentor friend said that they didn't email them. And they, like, I think they already had an agent at that point. So they set up 
screenings at the agency and we're like if you want to watch it you have to like come sit in the chair on this day mm-hmm. oh. um so it, there is like there are a lot of strategy i didn't i was not even aware that that was a strategy at the time because i was like oh my god they emailed me so icm was one of the companies that emailed me and they watched it and they liked it and i had just heard about the the exact like name of the person at the office I had been, their name had been mentioned to me three times by three people who I super re- trust and respected, admire. They were, and it was like mystical. I'm going to like, I'll, they, like, they were like, I'll just like make up a name where they're just like, Freddie Mercury, keep your eyes peeled. If Freddie Mercury <laughs> from ICM wants to represent you, say yes. And then it like just disappearing into a bush. And then another person was like, I love this, but Freddie Mercury ICM is the greatest of them all. And I was like, oh, weird. Someone else said that. And then they like, disappeared in a cloud of smoke and then another person said freddie mercury and then i got an email from the office of freddie mercury and it was like what is happening and then what is that what is happening and then i emailed them and then they liked it and then they asked to rep it and then it turned out to i I was just like absolutely because freddie mercury like like for sure it was them and then they were our sales rep going into the festival and then we didn't sell it on the first night to netflix for 10 million dollars as planned and I was like, okay, this sucks. Like, Freddie Mercury is never going to talk to me again because we aren't the, like, headline breakout, blah, blah, blah. Like, I'm an idiot. I suck. This is, a, I fail. I, I messed it all up. And um, I stayed through the third screening at South By. So what happens is usually, like, all the famous people come on the opening Friday and Saturday and Sunday nights, and then everyone leaves town. And everyone who's left is, like, a real fan or um, someone who is just kind of staying way longer than everyone else. And it feels kind of awkward where you're just like, I'm still here, but like all the people, like the industry is left. Am I a loser because I'm still here? Cause I didn't have any <laughs> like bigger thing to go home and do, but I'm staying through this to my f- next week, Friday, 11 AM screening because I am here for this. Like I kind of felt like a dork at the end. Cause you go to this filmmaker brunch and everyone's there and then everyone a lot of people leave, but some people stay. And it was really magical. And I'm glad that I did stay because I remember feeling really bummed out on that Friday morning going to the screening. I was like, literally all my friends are gone. No one's going to be there. It's gonna. There's going to be more people from the film doing the Q&A than people in the audience asking questions at the Q&A. This is going to be real depressing. And then we went to the theater and right when we were going to the theater it was like oh freddie mercury's office is called and they would like to set up a meeting with you regarding representation as an actor and director and (laughs) writer and i was like oh i didn't think that they would want to talk to me because i didn't sell like for 10 million dollars to netflix or amazon or whatever but this is this feels like progress this is good maybe this is the if this is the only thing that happens I'm okay with it. And we went in and there was a line around the building and people were like, Where's, is this a line from Mother's Little Helpers? Where's Mother's Little Helpers? And it was a sold out crowd. It was an amazing wow. crowd. We didn't know anyone in the audience and it was our best screening. And that was the first time I really had any like sense of confidence. Because <laughs> you know if it's all your family and your friends, you're like, they better fucking laugh at our jokes. Right. But if it's a bunch of like, if it's a bunch of college students in Austin who are like, hanging out afterwards, talking, that felt, like, real. It was amazing. So they, they're they repping the film in sales, but then they also brought you under their umbrella as for representation for you specifically, or did I miss that that didn't happen? No, they did. They okay. did. But that happened, like, after South by Southwest. And How I did you that, woo them? How did you woo them to I tell you, I that? didn't. No, I didn't. They, I, I, <laughs> I, I felt like I had 
failed. I felt like I had failed to woo them because I hadn't closed a major sale like days mm. with within days of you did something Kestrin. at the festival. Well, that's kind of amazing. <laughs> You're that, so like, good to me. <laughs> <laughs> it's just really funny because like you think like you go into this thing with like the highest of expectations, right? You know, and like it's kind of amazing that you even got in in the first place. Like you're one of a select few. Right. And, yeah. uh, I just think it's a great story to like, look at like, Oh my gosh, I'm, I'm going to sell for Netflix for 10 million or whatever. And then that, none of those big things happen, but then you still walk away with representation because you know, of the quality of your film and, and you as a filmmaker, it's like, you know, so I think it's just good to, to, to know that you don't have to win the lottery in order to like yeah. have success. You know. What does it feel like? What does it feel like to say you have an agent? Like what? It, like say it out <laughs> loud and then describe it to me. It changes over time because I like I used to be like a commercial actor, so like all my um my children, I have two kids, and like my whole family was on my SAG health insurance. And well, like, so you've had an agent as an as talent as actor. Yeah, yeah. Like, but mostly, I was like a successful commercial actor. I I never was like a series regular on a big TV series or anything. So it was I I've had an agent before, but not for this. Kind of going back to the like everyone I know who's had success, it wasn't really given to them. They like they invented it. They wrote something and then they pitched it to someone who was not asking them for it. And then that person somehow said yes because they were surprised and delighted and the person was pitching something that filled a need that they didn't even know that they wanted to be, uh, you know, fulfilled or serviced or met in some way. That, like, I feel like with agents, it's like they want you to do well, but they also need ammunition. Like, they got to have something to sell. So if you don't have a script ready for them to pitch or if you're, you know, then like they can't really help you that much. It's not just like we're just going to knock down doors and like fight for you unless you have something that I mean, that's that's one way of looking at it. So I find that it is almost like working with agents is like definitely a lot of relationship building and 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 rapport and liking them and being aligned in the stuff that you want to do. But the way that we got my, I wrote a script that I had been working on for a long time and I called a meeting and was like, here's what we're going to do. I put together a PowerPoint presentation. They booked a conference room. I like got everyone together and it was like, here's the board. This is what I got. And I pitched every single project. I had like three TV, three movies, and then like some reality shit. And I was like, this is the grid of like small, medium, large budgets in television, small, medium, large budgets in feature films, and then some like reality stuff, the small, medium, large. And I was like, this is a big board. What do you like out of this from who you're selling to and what you see in the market? Like what resonates? And it was also just practicing pitching in a conference room with, that was like kind of threatening with all these like power queens like in a room. And all of them are women, which is amazing, except for the, two of my managers are men. But it was just like awesome. Everyone in the room was like a lady maven. Like I, I lovingly <laughs> and like appreciatively call them witches, like my coven and really smart, funny people. And then we decided they're like, we like this one. And so let's go with that. And then they pitched that project because I pitched them the project. And then we got it in development at a company. And I've been working on rewriting that. I haven't been nailing my deadlines on that because we've been releasing this movie and I'm suddenly homeschooling two small children. But I am working on it. You did this big pitch. Like, how 
soon after you were signed did you do that? We went to South by. I got the email when I was really depressed, thinking I was a piece of shit at Friday morning at like 9 a.m. <laughs> sure, I just want sure, you to yeah. know how much of the story of success is thinking that you're a piece of shit while the best thing that you've always wanted, like your life stream is happening. And it was hard. Like we, we submitted a movie to South by Southwest that wasn't done. And so we got accepted on like January something. And then we had to deliver a finished festival finished film with a dcp on like february something oh wow and we had to slam our post something that would normally have taken eight weeks into like three weeks and it was really hard wow i was like having like acid reflux and popping zantac and then i found out zantac is bad for you like (laughs) eating tums like candy and then like all these life catastrophes happened in the meantime which normally would have derailed me like in a really significant way, but I was unable to take it on. I was just like, I have to, I was just saw, saw my final cut timeline or my Adobe premiere creative cloud timeline. Come on people. It's 2020. <laughs> right. Um, but the timeline haunted me. I was like, we got to be out of this timeline and into a fucking pro tools timeline. Like we need to be in a Da Vinci timeline. We cannot, we need to lock this movie Sunday. Yes. And, like, locking the movie was really hard and scary because I was, like, I still, like, am, like, suffering over the first 10 minutes of the movie where I'm, like, oh, God, I wish I could have fucking figured that out. Whatever. Well, no one ever, (laughs) right? No one ever sees their movie and it's, like, everything is perfect. Yeah. (laughs) Or it just depends on the audience who you watch it with and you're, like, oh, they love, we're geniuses. Or you're, like, oh, yeah, I guess it does suck. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so we go to South Bay. I have them 9 a.m. They invite me and I go in the following week. I wear a cape. It's amazing. <laughs> my manager came. It was like a management company that I wanted to sign with that it, like I'd never signed with for years. And then after we, yeah. And then they, they wanted to work with me like right before we applied to Sun, to South by. So I suddenly had a manager and then they asked to help like EP the movie. So they were also like, they like wrote checks and helped. Oh, people gave me money later on in the production process. I forgot to mention oh, that. Wow. So nice. when they saw that it was good and it was going nice. well and the cast nice. was really happy, the cast told their managers and friends and then the managers were like, we're a production company too. We want to produce this with you. Can I give you some money, please? I come home. I wear a cape to ICM. I love them. They're so funny. They offer like representation in the room. And I was just like, uh, duck, duck, yay. And but pretended <laughs> to be really cool. So we go in and it's great. And then you kind of have a point person that is more of a junior agent that represents the more kind of looming figures there and i don't understand like i love my my point person is amazing i love her it was the first time in my life that i haven't felt like threatened or intimidated but really collaborative with a like a real relationship with a person and i really love her and i respect and admire her she's really really down to earth and pragmatic she helped us so much like getting this movie set up like we she set us up with miranda bailey at cherry picks and they Mm -hmm. did a great we got to write a great thing i got to write an op-ed for cherry picks and that was just the direct result of charlotte lichtman at icm who i love so much and respect and admire when did we do the big board i think we did the big board like a month in because it was hard to get calendar like agent time is way slower than my filmmaking time or reality it's like let's set up a meeting for three weeks from now and we'll discuss Uh, Wow. So I think it was probably like that, where we were like, okay, well, let's let, let me show you the big board of projects. Did they solicit? Did they say, we want you to come in and present everything? Or were you like, I'm going to take this opportunity by by the reins and give you everything I have? Yes. No, I was like a CEO. I was like, okay, what are we doing here? We need to talk about the project grid and discuss and prioritize. And then we need to lean into what is like the most alignment. And I need to see if you guys are aligned with my work also. 
are all the projects that you pitched all things that you had written? They were all in various stages of development. So some were like, one was an option piece that was a full script. And that was the one that they ultimately went with, I think, just because it was a full script. It was a book that I'd optioned and developed into a script. And um, then and then there were some other things that were in treatment phases. But it was all presented kind of essentially the same as like slides in a keynote. You said you went into development with this project. Like, talk to us about what that means and how that happens. I was like, if this isn't on a spreadsheet with a list of targets, then I like don't understand what you're doing and what I'm doing and how we're making progress. So let's have a way to track progress. Nice. So I was kind of bossy. I, love <laughs> I was it like, worked. show me a list. Who are we targeting? And then they're like, okay, let's run down the list. And then they're like, these people were a note. These people were interested. These people liked your movie, but they're working on something else. And then my managers, this is where having a manager um, was really helpful because my managers were like super scrappy and setting up meetings left and right. And so it kind of, it was like a, it egged on momentum. And they were like, okay, well, we set up this meeting here, blah, blah, blah. And it kind of like had this silent unsaid sentence and what are you doing underneath it? Once you decided on the project that you wanted to pitch, how many pitches did you go on before you found the company that you went into development with? Two. Wow. I didn't go on that many. Wow. Amazing. So let's go Maybe back three. to the no, beginning. Three. One with manager set up and then two ICM set up. It but, was really clear, though. But, Kester, it let's go back to the beginning, not to, like, press this issue. <laughs> but you back. said it gets harder. <laughs> and it really sounds it really sounds like light at the end of the tunnel. You're no longer screaming into a void, which is probably what you weren't doing, but what I do regularly. And it just sounds like people are there to meet you. They're meeting you at your level and contributing and hustling alongside you. Like, the value of that is so exciting and impressive. So I just want to acknowledge that again. We could be self-deprecating. But, like, what? Like, would you still go and make another scrappy feature? I mean, I feel like I should have shot a movie last year. I feel like I should have another movie that is playing at a festival right now. Mm. I feel like I fucked up last year by not shooting the movie that I had planned to shoot. We ended up, like, my friends and I just ended up, like, fighting over whether or not it was going to be a series or a film. And then we made it a show and then we shot a pilot presentation in December and I'm editing it now. But oh. I'm like, shit, I should have like been like shooting a movie that whole time and not another micro yeah. or okay. Yeah. In addition to the development deal that you're working on with that company at the same time. Yeah, point. because that stuff is like glacial. But like with a development, like is there any money involved in that? Like No, they... this wasn't money. So this was not a dollar dollar bill. It, this was like we like the script, we love this concept, we like your voice. We need to shape the structure and um, we need like it needs to tighten up. And I knew it needed to be tightened up. Like I did not. I was like, this is going to be amazing once we fix it together. Uh, OK. And so I'm on like a writing timeline, which it, like has definitely like kind of landslid into the void right now. But is it but remains like relevant and active. Like it's it's something that I needed to get to a point where I could just sit down for like an hour every single day and like execute on the development was like we love you we love this idea we love this story and we're super emotionally invested in it and my executive is incredible but it was like we need to get the rewrite solid before we package it and then the money comes in once we package it okay and then this would be something that you would be attached to direct and also star in too or this one i am like if david fincher wants to direct it he may Oh. But like there's not that many other like I don't there's no one who can like do what I want to do with this story much better than I could do. Like they might be able to get a greenlit a little bit faster or easier for more money. But I'm like, right. seriously, like, what are you going to do better? Also, after coming from a micro budget feature that had such success, like 
why wouldn't you just make it on your own for like a more modest budget? This is a bigger story that this one does require actual money. Oh, okay. But like I am so like tuned into the tone and voice and story and the characters of this one. Like I think this one would be like we get some movie stars attached to it uh, and like like people and, and like it, it's a little bit more like in the Mad Mad Max Fury Road, like less uh, effects, but like a lot of practical stuff okay. in the desert. But I mean, that's the part where I think it is really just persistence and confidence, right? Where I'm like, mm-hmm. I've made two movies. Like I know there's not going to be like that many effects. Like I can definitely, like I've worked with a lot of explosions in my life. Like I have worked with fire a lot. I understand fire <laughs> and I can yes. hire a professional to do fire in a professional way while we film it and blow some stuff up because I've fucking like been around like ricocheted flaming like trebuchet launched catapulted flaming pianos and like owned fire poofers like there is going to be a lot of fire and blowing things up and we'll do it safely in the right way but like how many directors have actual experience blowing shit up that they've blown up Right. You know, male or female, not that many people like shoot guns. Right. Like I don't really, sh- I'm not like a gun shooter, but like they all direct stuff with sh- explosions and guns aflaming in it. And they manage right. to do it. You know, it's like you just fucking cover it with the right fucking lens and make your DP like get the shot. Right. You approve right. a shot. You approve a fucking shot. So, so it sounds like your advice is like even all but all the dreams are coming true. You have this management, you have this team behind you. You're talking to this production company. You're in development on your next project. Like you still think go back to the indie roots, make a micro budget project while all these other things are happening. Like don't don't take it easy, right? Oh God, no, 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 no. You have to work twice as hard. That's where I feel like I'm I'm like slacking now. Like I feel like, oh, I should have finished this rewrite before May 5th so that when we were doing press for this that I already had this the financing like secured for it or whatever. But I don't know. Like We're also in a pandemic. We're also in a global pandemic. And yeah, it's a weird time. But like it is really fun. I'm glad we shot stuff in December. It actually is a good time to be editing something. Oh, yeah, definitely. So one one more thing before we get to that. I just wanted to like emphasize cuz like so many of our listeners and me as a filmmaker as well like in the past like you you imagine you get to South by Southwest, oh my gosh, dreams come true. You get agents and managers. Oh my gosh, dreams come true. I'm there. But I think one of the things that we always try to reinforce with this podcast is like the journey, the struggle, the hard never. work never ends, yeah. you know. So, you know, don't think that you're going to get into Sundance or South by Southwest and, you know, take it easy. Like you like I love that you said that because that's just, you know, kind of what I've been hearing from other people. Well, and to take a success story of someone else that is totally not my story and someone I've never actually met. But I'm I would like shared an office with a friend of his. There's there's one director who directed a movie that went to Sundance, didn't sell. Then they directed a movie at South by that did really well but they started making their south like the next year so like they had their second say like well just like i'm making updates here like they had a sundance movie in 2015 they started shooting a movie immediately so that their next movie played at sundance or south by 2016 that one was the one that got them signed and like directing a marvel movie now wow Wow. so i was like in my head i was like i need to be directing like my short-term 12 right now like Mother's right. Little Helpers was my like whatever and this one I need to get my other one so that I can direct my Marvel movie so I do feel like a little bit of like 
uh, drift in that sense because I know what it looks like when stuff goes. And I was like, well, what what does my 2020 look like? Because I, I have to earn 20, 2019 was my 2018 project, right? Right. And so 2020 needs to be whatever I worked on in 2019. So I'm just going to make that be the pilot that I shot and like the script and be happy. Yeah. <laughs> um, are you uh, a full time, like the way you survive is it through filmmaking like is it your economic substance substance um, what is the word i'm looking yeah, for yeah like it, how do pay i pay bills? for stuff yeah yeah um yeah so like right now it's directing and um, i'm directing a feature next you know depending on as soon as the economy opens up like i have a hired gun directing gig I'm going to direct a little indie movie that I'm getting paid for that I didn't write and I'm not producing for money. And that will be like my gig. But um, I have had a, an odd like financial situation where I own like the said karaoke RV. Um, mm-hmm. That would be something that I would do like about four or five times a year at a big um, conference that would be like a corporate Fortune 500 Fortune uh, company sponsored event that I would do quarterly, basically. And then I would direct other projects in between for money. So I had one financial foot in like almost like a immersive events business that I own mm-hmm. owned because immersive events are no longer a thing. Right. <laughs> like there's no festival. So my company like is basically closed. Um, so I'm focusing. I mean, I kind of have to focus on directing right now. Really briefly, this gun for hire directing job, how did that come about? Not through my agents. Really? Um, wow. Totally random. Through a friend of a friend, like an acquaintance recommended me. They were looking for a female director for a smaller movie, and they had heard of Mother's Little Helpers. So that was just a personal recommendation. I think with the agent thing, it does feel like you have ultimate reach, but you have to, it all comes from you. They do not like call. I mean, sometimes they call you up with offers and stuff like that. But I think that when you're unless you're at a certain point where you're like already famous and already in demand, they're fielding offers. But if you're not a huge household name and you're not already like stacked on TV shows where they're like, we need a we need a woman to direct this or we need a director to direct this. You have to act like a CEO and pitch and plan and follow up and ride and like you have to be working a calendar and working a spreadsheet and asking for status updates and generating status updates on your end to encourage them and inspire them like it's almost harder to like you have to inspire a team and lead and if you're not doing it jack shit will happen if you're me wow amazing (laughs) what is the first project the first film project you ever made and how do you feel about it now i love it so much a director friend of mine, when I was acting, said if I wanted to direct, I had to get um, Final Cut Pro because it was those days and start shooting every day and editing every day. So I got it. I got a finger puppet toy monster that I put on my finger and I filmed it everywhere I went, me and this monster. And I <laughs> wrote a love story of this woman who falls in love with this little finger puppet. And they went everywhere. They went to Disneyland. They went to camping they went to magic mountain their fireworks it was just everywhere that i was i filmed any awesome backdrop i filmed with this little puppet and i cut it together to the bowie at the beeb version of starman and made a music video of her falling in love with this puppet and then the puppet falling in love with another finger puppet while i like cried in the background while i had two little (laughs) monsters making out in front of me while i was being betrayed and man I still love it. It was like shitty. There's soft focus. Like it's there's no sound. It's really low res somewhere on the internet now. And I love it. I think it was great. What's the best filmmaking advice you've ever received? Learn how to edit. Like I never would have had the confidence to make my first movie or my second movie if I hadn't known that I could deliver. 
Worst case scenario, I didn't need to pay an editor $3,000 a week or $5,000 or one. I didn't have to find an editor. I knew that I could deliver a film. What's your goal as a filmmaker? Short term, I want to direct television and I want to do more explosions in sci-fi and commercials. Long term... I want to, and this could also be short term as well. There's a series that I've created and shot that I would like to sell and be in and make in the in the realm of, like, I was very inspired by what they did with um, Bless This Mess, R.I.P. I think that they should have kept that show going. I love Mrs. Fletcher. Like, I'd love to direct Mrs. Fletcher. That would be my dream. Um, but doing, like, a character-driven, like, awkward show that I have written uh, with my cast from Mother's Little Helpers, that would be like, uh, that would be a real great dream. And then this bigger movie, I want it to be the one that's in development right now. I feel like that would be like the real, the real rock and roll like fantasy. So working on that. If you could go back in time, what's one piece of advice you would give yourself? Don't be such a little bitch. <laughs> I need you to elaborate that. <laughs> there was one of those memes that was like, just remember when you're feeling down and alone and like no one cares, just remember to stop being such a whiny little bitch because no one gives a shit. Or something. <laughs> <laughs> like, it was like wow. over ocean, sandy, like airbrushed, like <laughs> background. Um, no, I just think I feel like there was so much like emotion around stuff that I could have just cut that out and gotten straight back to work. And if I could figure out a way to short circuit that part of my brain, I think I would be a lot more successful. Uh, for what it's worth, I think whatever you are bringing to the table is emotionally is the reason for your success, Kestrin. I mean, <laughs> it's you're incredibly charming. Your, your self-deprecating nature is incredibly charming. And I think if you were to cut out all of the, the bullshit, um, you would be uh, less less magnetic of a human. <laughs> So take that and shove it. Kestra, take it okay. and shove it. <laughs> I'm going to cry. That was the sweetest thing anyone's ever said to me. It's like 10 a.m. on a Sunday and I'm crying. Oh. Thanks, uh, guys. Our, of course. Our last question, though, is, is making movies hard? Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. hard. But if you love it, it's better than any of the other options. It's kind of like democracy. Like, it's the worst system, but it's the best. It's like making movies is terrible terribly hard and you know that when you start a feature you're looking at the next two to three years of your life and that will be your life and I can't imagine wanting to do anything else. If people want to find you Kestrin where can they find you? Where can they see the Mother's Little Helpers? Mother's Little Helpers is um, on Amazon. You should just watch it right now on Amazon or iTunes um, and you can find it everywhere that it's available because it's on all the things uh, at motherslittlehelpers.co and then I am at Kestrin Pantera on Instagram and at Kestrin on Twitter. Um, there's not that many of us. So if you find Kestrin, <laughs> you'll probably find me. All right. Well, thank you for listening. And thanks to Kestrin Pantera, uh, who has the world's best name, and uh, for all her contributions to this podcast. And Joy Pride for making this happen. Check out our website, makingmoviesishard.com, where you can find links to the things we talked about on this episode. If you want to get in contact with us, send an email to podcast at makingmoviesishard.com. Find us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram at MMIH Podcast. I am Liz Manishow on Twitter and most other places. And I'm Ulrich B on Instagram and Twitter. And you can find me on Facebook, too. 
you like the show, tell a friend. Help us get the word out and leave a review on iTunes or Stitcher. And thank you so much from the bottom of our hearts. I know we call them overlords, but we truly, truly adore them. <laughs> uh, Greg Holtzman, Joshua Sterling Bragg, editor Allison Stoney, the whole Bloodstream Media team for making this episode possible. And we will talk to everyone next week. I think, uh, you know, overlords can be an endearing term, right? It doesn't (laughs) just mean gloom and doom, does it? (laughs) I think they know we love them. Yeah, it's said with love, guys. Definitely. (laughs) Uh, All right, perfect. We did it. Breakfast sandwich time.